Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the title of the sermon is All of Salvation is of the Lord, and this will be part one of our time in this psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless and use his word this morning. This is a deep and rich psalm penned by David as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, and there's far too much to cover in one sermon. So Lord willing, next week we will finish up this psalm. This morning I want to look at verses 1 through 6. And this psalm tells us that David 
is the secondary author of this psalm. Again, it's good to remind ourselves as we see that this is a psalm of David, that he is the secondary author. For God is the primary author of all Scripture, whether it's the Psalms, Romans, Isaiah, or the book of Genesis. And it tells us that this psalm was written as the fruit of Nathan the prophet coming to David. Why did Nathan come to David? He came to David to expose his sins. See, there's a, there's a, there's a contradiction that seems to be in the psalm. Nathan confronts David about his sin and worship is produced. Repentance is produced. Joy is produced. And it's all because of the gospel. So if we're to understand the weight of Nathan coming, coming to the king, coming to a king that could literally cast him out of the kingdom or even take his life if he didn't like what he said. Nathan came to talk about the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had lusted after her in his flesh and then in seeking to cover it up by the power of his flesh had murdered her husband. And this is where we are as we enter this psalm. It will be helpful for us to read the account of the event when Nathan came to David. So turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to pick up in chapter 11, verse 26. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. Because in this passage, we see some, some key truths that will help us not only feel the weight and ugliness of sin, but by God's grace, help us to see the gospel more clearly. 2 Samuel 11, beginning reading in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Could God put more evidence in one verse? Uriah, the wife, her husband, Uriah, her husband. Over and over and over again in one verse, the point is being hammered home. Bathsheba was not David's. She was Uriah's wife. And when the morning was over, not the morning of the day, but the morning of the soul was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Our heart might want to say, yeah, David, Our heart might want to point that out when we see the sins of others. Yeah, this displeases the Lord. But we need to understand that all sin displeases the Lord. See, as believers, our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Our sins have been put aside as far as the east is from the west. And yet when we sin every day, it still displeases the Lord because He's still holy. We don't lose our salvation when we sin. 
We don't lose our standing in Christ when we sin, but we lose fellowship with God and we lose fellowship with each other. Do you think that there was peace between David and Uriah after David had sinned with his wife even though Uriah didn't know it? There was so much tension it led to his death. Do you think there was peace between Bathsheba and David? Do you think his conscience was so clean that as he received his new wife that he wasn't overwhelmed by killing her husband? See, we need the first thing we need to see is that the Bible teaches that the marriage bed is to be undefiled, that we are to protect the unity of marriage because it is the central aspect of the family, and the family is the central aspect of all of living. It is where children are raised. It is where societies are built. It is God's design. We live in a time where the government says, no, parents don't have rights. The government has rights. And yet God designed marriage as the first relationship in the created order. He created Adam and Eve as husband and wife. He didn't create friends. He didn't create brothers and sisters. He didn't create anything first except the marriage union. Because from that marriage union flows all of life. And I mean all of life, both physically and spiritually. Because before, even before they had a physical child, God promised that a child from her womb would be the savior of the church. Think about that. That this beautiful union that God designed for Adam and Eve before the fall, marriage is a creation ordinance. It's not just a church ordinance. When we see society doing everything in their power to avoid marriage, to disdain marriage, we we have this tendency in the church today to say, well, it doesn't matter. They're not Christians. It does matter because God is holy and sin displeases him. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. So not only is... God the author of Scripture, but God is the author of all of history. Through his divine providence, he rules over everything so that everything that comes to pass is according to his will. Nathan came to David and said to him, before we read it, we need to understand that the Lord had Nathan use a parable to make his point to David. Nathan could have just come right out and said, David, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're a wicked sinner, and you need to repent. True statements. But in this instance, God has Nathan use a parable. And as Nathan uses this parable, David's faith is awakened. See, when we're Christians, our faith needs to be active. Because if our faith isn't active, our flesh is. David, at the time kings were to go to war, for some reason, we're not told in the Bible why, but for some reason, David stayed home. Now as his eyes looked over the city, all the men that were able-bodied men were gone to war. And David's eyes begin to scan the city, and he falls upon 
Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Instead of turning around, instead of covering his eyes, instead of looking away, he lusts after Bathsheba and takes steps to commit adultery. David wasn't walking by faith. See, sometimes people teach, it's like, once you're a Christian, faith is like pixie dust. It's always active. That's a lie. If we're not intentionally looking to Christ, if we're not intentionally fighting against sin, if we're not intentionally loving the truth, seek first His kingdom, then we'll be living by the old way. We'll be living by the flesh. And so enter Nathan into the presence of David and The text doesn't say, but we see that David receives him. And Nathan says this, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. And prepared it, meaning he killed it for the man who had come to him. Just a simple story. But it's a simple story of right and wrong. It's a simple story that anybody that desires to know the truth looks at it and says, the rich man was wrong. Well, beloved, that's where we live today in our country, right? The rich demand more and more as they continue to take from the poor all in the name of justice. See, anyone can look at this and say, the rich man did wrong to the poor man. It's obvious. And David's faith is activated as he sees this. Is this how we are? When we see sin in the world, when we hear of sin in the world, is is our faith active and and it's causing us to be in torture in our soul? Our righteous soul is being tortured by the things around us? Because that's what the Bible says that Christians are to be like. It's the testimony given of Lot in the New Testament to help the New Testament church understand when you live amongst filth, your righteous soul should be tormented, not joining in. Not numb. Because if we're numb to sin, then we're not fighting against it in our own life. We're just trying to not look at it and avoid it. So David's faith is active. And in verse 5 we read, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. It's a parable. It's not even a real situation. But Nathan is telling it to the king as if it's a real situation. That somebody in the kingdom has treated another person wrong. And David's faith as a believer and David's rule as a king begins to burn against the man. Which man? The poor man? Certainly not. 
against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. But before he dies, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Right ruling, by the way, right? All sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. See, we've grown up in a culture that's so filthy that we have grown to tolerate certain sins as if they don't deserve death. But David, by faith, even though he's in the midst of sinning, is seeing it rightly by God's grace. Do you believe that when you see sin rightly in your life or in someone else's life, that it's, that it's by God's grace? What we do with it may not be by God's grace. See, we are to respond how God commands us to respond. We'll talk about that more later. David's faith is active even though he had pushed it aside to sin with Bathsheba and to murder Uriah. He still knows the difference between right and wrong. Sin is bothering him at this moment. This was the whole point by God's divine providence to tell this parable, to bring sin to the front of David's mind to know what sin deserves. And then look what Nathan says. Because what happens when sin is not rightly understood? Are we thanking God for the forgiveness of our sins? Are we running to God in repentance when we sin, trusting and clinging to the gospel and clinging to Christ, believing the promises of God? Or are we just trying to avoid thinking about what we did? Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Do do you see how the tables flipped? It's a simple parable. David comes to the perfect and right conclusion by God's grace, and then Nathan takes the sword of justice and stabs it through the heart of David. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Did you see another clue that we need to learn about sin? It not only displeases the Lord, but our action of sinning is despising the word of the Lord. It's a, it's a rejection of the word of the Lord. We hear what the word says. We, we hear the law. We know what it says. We know the law. We know what we're commanded to do. And by sinning, we're just despising it. We're just pushing it away. To do what is evil in his sight. Sin is evil in the sight of God. We cannot understand sin by what is evil in the eyes of society. 
because society applauds wickedness and hates righteousness. That's what, right, that's what the unrighteous do. They love evil and they hate good. We have to understand what displeases God and then fight not to do it by faith. Then he says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Did David have a sword in his hand to strike down Uriah? No. But he ordered it to be done. He's guilty. See, if you look at the judicial system that was set up in America, it was set up on biblical principles, which are slowly, more quickly in our day, eroding away. In our day, it would be argued, David was in Jerusalem. Uriah died way over there. He had nothing to do with it. You can't prove it. God knows. And God puts the sword in David's hand. David is the murderer of Uriah. Secondly, and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Think about the the, the heinousness of that. The Ammonites are the enemies of not only Israel, but they're the enemies of God. God told Israel to destroy them, and David, to cover up his sin, has allowed the enemies of God to think they had victory as they killed Uriah the Hittite. And who was Uriah the Hittite? Just some wimpy little unknown soldier? No, he was one of the mighty men. He was one of David's closest warriors. It's not just that he took a man's wife. He took a man who had faithfully served him year after year after year after year, putting his life on the line. That's the man that he stole his wife. And then he let the pagan nation of the Ammonites think that they had victory over Israel by killing one of their mighty men. Verse 10 Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And that me is not Nathan. That me is the Lord, remember? And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. If you read in the history of Israel, this happens. Publicly. A display of debauchery. David said to Nathan, no, I didn't. No, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Do do you feel that? See, God puts away our sin When we're in Christ, that's one of the new covenant promises that our sins are put away. But sometimes the consequences are not put away. Sometimes our sins have great and grievous consequences, painful consequences. But our sins are forgiven. 
The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Did David despise the Lord when his child died? If you keep reading, he doesn't. He goes into a time of prayer and fasting, praying that the Lord may be merciful and spare his child. But when the child dies, David goes back to his chores as a king. He washes his face and goes and eats while he was praying he wouldn't eat. See, David sets an example of what true repentance looks like and what a restored life looks like. It receives the consequences of the sin while rejoicing in the goodness of God. Because why are the consequences able to be received and still worship the goodness of God? Because the consequences are our fault, not God's. See, God promises to put away our sins as far as the east from the west. He doesn't promise to always put away the consequences. Paul even says, if you go to jail for being a thief, you deserve it. He's speaking to the church. If you go to jail for what you deserve to do, then don't boast that you're suffering for Jesus' sake. You're getting what you deserve. But even there, we are to praise God for his goodness and his mercy for putting our sins away. While there may be consequences for our sins on earth, there may be consequences of the government being put in prison for our sins, for our crimes, God Almighty has put them away in the work of his Son. See, the problem is much of American Christianity doesn't care about their sins being put away. All they want is consequences being removed. Have you ever heard somebody pray that way? Something bad, he do, they do something bad, there's horrible consequences. All they want is God to remove the consequences. And when God doesn't remove the consequences, they curse God and walk away from the church. That's not faith. That's God sifting his church and showing that that person had not faith. David has faith. David, in this conflict of sin, in this conflict with the holiness of God, in the conflict with the prophet of God, writes Psalm 51 as an act of worship for himself, as an act of worship for the people of Israel, and as an act of worship for us. That's why it's in Scripture. So we need to see That even though David was forgiven by the Lord, his child still dies as the result of his sin. You can read that in verses 15 through 23 if you keep reading in chapter 12. Whether God removes our consequences or doesn't remove our consequences, he is worthy to be worshipped. Therefore, we are called to thank him, to praise him, because he's God, and therefore he never changes. See, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our consequences, in the midst of the storms of life, we often put the change on God rather than the problem with us. God never changes. He can't change. If God can change, it means he's not good now. If God can change for the worse, 
It means he's not trustworthy now. So whether he changes for the good or changes for the worse, he's not God. The reason why we worship him is because he's God. And because he's God, he can never change. He's always perfect. We sang it. We used old English, but he was, he is, and he is to come perfect. He's holy. Throughout history, he's holy. Throughout eternity, he's holy. Nathan went home in peace. Why? For he had done the will of the Lord. Was it an easy will of the Lord to be accomplished? Of course not. He went before the highest ruler in the land and confronted him about his sin. Can you think of a prophet that does this later on in history? And is beheaded and his head given to the woman who asked for it to be beheaded? John the Baptist. Same sin. Same sin. He confronted the king because he had taken his brother's wife. And John, as he preached that to that leader, his head was taken off. Do you see consistency? The church must speak into community. We're not just to talk about sin in the church. We're to go into the world and use God's law and say, this is unacceptable. You are displeasing to the Lord. And then we are to preach the gospel. Adultery in the church is ugly. Adultery outside of the church is ugly. And God is displeased with both. Why? Because they're both adultery. The church today doesn't speak, for the most part, into community. And we need to. We live in a state, we live in a country that wants to defame what marriage is by God's design and say it's good for anybody and everybody, regardless of who they are and what they are. God is displeased with that. Displeased with that. When we say God is displeased, we need to feel the weight of that displeasure. Pleasures forevermore are at his right hand for the church. It's the opposite of that. Whatever heights of joy you can think of that the church has the pleasures of God pouring to them forever and ever and ever at his right hand, they never end, they never cease. The opposite of that is true for the wicked. And they need to be warned. We also need to understand that even though this happened to David, God records this in his word so that it is all for believers in every age in the church. Think about what we're reading. God is showing the world that one of his children sinned wickedly. Shouldn't surprise us, but it usually does surprise people especially unbelievers when they read the Bible, like, there's sin in the Bible. Yes, Christ came to save sinners. And we should say, and such of us are the chief. See, to rightly understand sin puts all the pressure pointing here, not anywhere else. Because we understand the depths of our own heart and the depths of our own mind, which this psalm is going to help, by the way. So let's... Look at Psalm 51. Like I said, we're only going to look at six verses this morning. But we need to have all that 
as an introduction to help us understand the weight of David's words. See, sometimes we read Scripture and our flesh says, yeah, but that person doesn't understand what I'm going through. Yeah, they're writing some nice religious stuff, but they don't understand my pain. Read David's pain as he weeps and cries aloud and doesn't eat for days as he prays for his child. David understands pain. David understands justice. David understands forgiveness and mercy because David is our brother in Christ. That's how we need to read this psalm. So let's read this psalm and see these beauties together. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. As we said earlier, this psalm is written by David after he'd committed adultery and murder and was restored by the grace and mercy of God. This psalm is the fruit of repentance. This psalm is the fruit of God's grace and mercy and love. We should look at all Scripture that way. These are sinners writing Scripture. If we make David this sinless saint and elevate him to some place of worship like Rome does, we're missing the point. We won't be able to relate to David. David is a sinner saved by grace, just like us. He's just like us. So is Peter, so is Paul, so is James, so is Luke, so is Ezekiel, so is Moses. Every single person that's in the church, beginning with the first believer, ending with the last believer, every one of them are a sinner saved by grace, saved by faith, saved by in Christ alone, saved for the glory of God alone, and saved by hearing the truth of God's word alone. Secondly, believers can never lose their salvation, for it is the sovereign work of God. See, the more weight you put on yourself, like, well, God did what he did, but then I saved myself because I'm a good person, I did what was required, You look at your neighbor and say, well, at least I believed, and you look down upon people. You'll be most crushed when sin comes knocking and God's holiness comes approaching. See, David's faith is so fixed on the glory of God, the holiness of God, the graciousness of God, that when he confesses that he sinned, when he sinned, he didn't say, well, I've sinned against Bathsheba, let me go make it right. We already read in 2 Samuel, and we will read here that David understood that he sinned against God. Was God the one he killed? No. Was God the husband of Bathsheba? If she was a believer, he is. But not in the sense of the earthly marriage. And yet David's sin is against God. So we can never lose our salvation, but for a time we can lose our intimate fellowship with God and his people, for God opposes the proud. See, sometimes when we feel our time with the Lord isn't as sweet, it's because God is causing us to ache for his fellowship. And sometimes it's because our sin is that we haven't drawn to him, we haven't drawn near to him, we haven't gone to his word, we haven't gone in prayer. Sometimes that distance as we go 
in prayer and go to his word is because we have sin that God wants us to deal with. And from this place of brokenness and restoration, David pens this psalm. David had to be broken first before Psalm 51 could be birthed. Think about that. Like God wrote Psalm 51 through David. Glory! But David had to be broken first. David had to be made aware once again of his absolute inability to do anything but sin apart from the grace of God. Do we believe that for ourselves? That we can do no good apart from the grace of God. That we can't love God, that we can't love each other unless God works in us and through us to accomplish his good purpose. Because until we believe that, we won't be clinging to him the way we should. David's opening words to this psalm are, Have mercy on me, O God. And listen closely to the two things that he points to. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David cries out to the Lord for him to be merciful, for David knows that he does not deserve God's forgiveness and does not deserve God's favor to be upon him. That's how we need to pray. I don't deserve this, Lord, but I need it. But David desires to be cleansed from his sin. But listen, David here, we must see that he bases his hope not on past obedience, not on past faithfulness, not that he's the king of Israel, and not that he's a child of God. See, when we base our prayers on something we do, it's as if we're bribing God. Lord, I I did good yesterday, forgive me. Lord, I've been a faithful Christian for years, forgive me. As if you're purchasing forgiveness. But David bases all of his hope on God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. That's the beauty that the scriptures teach us about the God who saves. His love is everlasting and his mercy is abundant. It's overflowing. It's not like, here you go, child, have a drip of mercy. And when you use it up, you're gone. Fall away from the faith. No, his love and his mercy are abundantly poured out on believers. He does more than we could ask or imagine. In other words, David's hope is in the new covenant. David had the new covenant presented to him in all the types, all the shadows, and all the promises that pointed to Jesus. And this is where his hope is. His hope is in the gospel of grace. His hope is in the finished work of his redeemer, his mediator, his king, his Lord, Jesus. Same David, my Lord said to my, the Lord said to my Lord. David was the king of Israel, but he knew he wasn't the king of glory. David was a type of the king of glory, but David knew he was not the king of glory. Just like John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. And he made it perfectly clear. Why? Because he was doing miracles and he was prophesying and doing things and some people thought he was the Christ. No, I'm not the Christ. David knew he was not the king of glory. But he rested in the king of glory. David's hope is in the free and sovereign choice of God to save sinners. Is that where our hope is? 
that we rejoice in salvation because God freely chooses to save sinners that come to him in Christ? David's hope is on the steadfast love of God that was set upon him before the foundation of the world simply because God chose to be merciful. That's what the Bible teaches, right? That we know that we're the elect of God when we believe. Nobody knows they're the elect before they believe. It's in believing we realize that God's love has pursued us from before the foundation of the world and everything that took place to bring about our salvation. Listen to what God said to Moses about his work of salvation, which David certainly knew and read. It's from the book of Exodus. If you were a king, you you actually had to have your own copy of the law, which is the first five books of of the Bible. That's part of who you were as a king. You had to have your own copy. Even every man in Israel had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. This this would be common scripture. If you want to read along, turn to Exodus 33. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. but, But listen to these words and hear the beauty of the gospel and know that it's scriptures like these that gave David the faith to cry out for his steadfast love and abundant mercy to wash him. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. See, Moses was a brother in the faith. He was known by God. It's what it means to be a believer, that you're known by God and by Him knowing you, you come to know Him. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. No one has ever seen God. No one. So how do we know God? Jesus Christ has made him known. The Son took on flesh so that we might know God. If God in all his fullness stood among us, we would all die in in an instant. Why? Because we're still sinful. Now feel the weight of that and understand we'll be in his presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in glory. And we won't die because we'll be glorified. We'll be made like Christ So the beauty of the gospel is through the work and person of Jesus Christ, you know the Father. You know the Son and you know the Holy Spirit because you've seen Jesus. It's that mediator work that Jesus does that allows us to see God by faith. Because if we were to behold Him with these sinful eyes, we would die. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Again, God doesn't have a hand. God doesn't have a face. These are words used to help us understand that God is revealing himself to Moses. But how is he revealing himself? By putting Moses on a rock and putting Moses in the rock. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. It's what we sang, isn't it? Like, as, as we were singing the songs, I, I've had such a, a, a crazy week. I felt so ill-prepared to preach, and yet everything just, God has just been so gracious to put everything together so that we can worship. He says, And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What a glorious picture of Christ Jesus, our great mediator. For Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And he is a perfect mediator so that we don't perish. This passage is all about the gospel of grace. All about God choosing to be merciful to his elect. That's what he said. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's my choice to save. It's my choice to love. It's my choice to save wicked sinners, God says. That's the good news of the gospel. Because if God didn't choose to save, no one would be saved. Because sinners can't come into the presence of God. It's all about God choosing to be loving and merciful to a people that he's chosen to save. We see Paul quoting this same passage. He quotes verse 19 as he's unpacking the gospel in Romans 9. This is about the gospel. This isn't some about mystical hocus pocus and hands and faces and trickery. It's about the holiness of God being unable to be in the presence of sinful man and yet God makes a way so that he's revealed to man. And it's through Christ. It's what Jonah said. Salvation is of the Lord. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not going to preach to those animals. Three days later, uh, okay, salvation's of the Lord. Right on dry land. It seems unthinkable that a human being could live inside of a great fish, but it's exactly what happened. How do we know that? Because the Bible told us it happened. And the whole point of the story is not about the great fish. It's not even about Jonah's rebellion. It's about Jonah as a man of God coming to the conclusion that I don't have to love the Ninevites because God already has. And because God has, I need to. The Ninevites were the most hateful, nasty people to the, Israel, to the Jews. And God says, go, go give them the gospel. Jonah's whole problem was that he knew God would be merciful. It's why he got mad at the end of the story. I knew you would be merciful. Think about the, think about the self-centeredness. You've been merciful to me, and I thank you for that. But them? What was Jonah's problem? He didn't understand the depth of his depravity. 
See, this is the problem in America today. There's one Adam, and all people come from one Adam. Therefore, we're all the same. And if we want to divide on gender and race and color of skin and and wealth and power, then we destroy what God is making in the gospel. Because if we confess that we come from Adam, we have to confess that we have a sin nature. Because our father, Adam, rebelled against God and sinned. Let's continue. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you hear what David's saying? Nathan told him, the Lord has said to you, your sin has been put away. So you won't die. Means he was forgiven. So what is David praying for? I want to be cleansed from that sin. I don't just want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed from that sin. I want the filth of murder. I want the filth of lying. I want the filth of dishonoring God. I want the filth of adultery washed off of me. David knows that God alone can wash him thoroughly from all his iniquity and cleanse him from all his sin. Saving faith rests in God and his ability to save. Saving faith rests in Christ Jesus as our only hope. Saving faith rests in the fact that we are already justified, that we are being sanctified, and at the second coming our salvation will be complete as we are glorified in the presence of the Lord God Almighty, never to sin again. See, every Christian has no problem on the day that they're saved, Lord, I'm a sinner, cleanse me and save me. But I can't tell you how many sinners try to put their sins in a bag and hide them from God and hide them from God and therefore they're never washed. And they walk around as guilty, feeling filthy sinners rather than saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's easy to say, I'm too sinful to serve the Lord. He could never use me. But that's not walking by faith. It's easy to feel filthy. But by faith, we've been given access by the mediator Christ to come into the presence of God and say, Lord, wash me. Isn't that the picture with Jesus and the towel? Peter says, wash my whole body. Jesus is like, you you took a bath. I don't need to wash your body. I need to wash your feet because of where you've been. I need to wash your feet because of the way you live. I need to wash your feet by the way that you think and move in this world. I need to wash you or you're not mine. If we won't go to Christ to be washed, then we're not his. See, it's the joy of the finished work of the gospel, not the Roman Catholic system where Jesus is still hanging on the cross, still hanging on the cross, sacrificed at every mass. We go to the risen king and say, wash me. Because I trust in your life, I trust in your death, and nothing else can make me clean. And when we believe that by faith, we're washed. There's no magical washing. There's no ceremonial bucket like the Jews did, and they'd pour the water over their hands, and they'd pour the water over their head, and they'd do this ceremonial ritual, and then they were clean. Remember them rebuking Jesus? How come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? They weren't talking about being clean with soap. They were talking about this holy washing to display to the world, I'm too holy to eat without doing this first. This is what it means to be washed. 
to go to God and confess our sins. Godly sorrow produces what? Life. Worldly sorrow produces death. Being sorry for your sin isn't enough. It must be a sorrow that drives you to the cross. It must be a sorrow that drives you to God and says, cleanse me, Lord. Cleanse me from this, 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 and this. Because I know the work and person of Christ is sufficient. Praise you for the gospel of grace. And walk in faith. In this life, think about who we'll be in glory. That's a good thing. Paul said to the Thessalonians, encourage one another by these things that King Jesus is coming. But in this life, every day we're still going to sin. Every day we're going to fall short of the glory of God. Sin misses the mark. Sin doesn't go where God wants us to go because we're following our flesh instead of following the Spirit. Therefore, we need to constantly come to God in repentance. That's the beauty of, that's the beauty of faith. It repents freely when we're saved and it repents freely every day because every day we still sin. A repenting Christian is a whole Christian. A repenting Christian is a serving Christian because they know that they've been cleansed from all their sin. They don't feel dirty anymore because they've confessed them to God. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is all that I just said. David is openly confessing, I know I murdered, I know I committed adultery, I know I lied, I know I deceived, I know I dishonored you. David feels the right weight of his sin. And David knows that he cannot wash and cleanse himself. We'll see that in verse 16. I can't give you, an, I can't give you a sacrifice. I can't, I can't offer an animal on the altar because I've already believed in Jesus. I want my sins cleansed, but I don't want them cleansed to be a citizen of Israel. I want them cleansed because I'm a citizen of glory. Because he trusts in the finished work of the Redeemer. He believes in the promised Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then David again says something shocking in verse 4. Something we need to hear. Something that we've already stated a little bit, but we need to see it. Look what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. In 2 Samuel, it says, I've sinned against you. But here in the psalm, he makes it even clear. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If someone ever says to you, what sin? It's anything that's evil in the sight of God. If we make up rules, you've got to wear certain shirts, certain dresses, certain pants, and when people don't, we call it sin, we're being legalists. Because God never said certain shirts are holy and certain clothes are holy. God says dress modestly. So what do we say is sin? Dressing immodestly. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Think about that. God Almighty is so holy that when we sin against him, his words of judgment are pure and his words of truth, his law is pure. David clearly ruined people's lives by his sins. Right? He ruined a marriage. He took Uriah's life. He gave commands to the commander in the army to let pagans kill a good man. 
He ruins people's lives. But when it comes to the right understanding of sin, we must see that our primary offense is against God and God alone because we broke his law. That this is so severe, it's so severe against the holy God that our sins against each other pale in comparison. We need to hear this, beloved. Because what you see in the church today is people saying, what you did to me, I can't forgive you. They don't understand the grace of God. They don't understand their sin is so ugly against God. They haven't read the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is what David is talking about. He's he's putting it in a simple statement. But he's saying, God has forgiven me so much, I only see my sins against God. It doesn't mean he doesn't apologize to Bathsheba. It doesn't mean he doesn't apologize to other people for bringing harm upon them. But he sees his sins are against God so clearly that everything else pales in comparison. When we do this, it helps us forgive each other. If you know that your sins are only against God, that he's the judge, that he's the lawgiver, that he speaks only truth, that you've broken his truth, that you've broken his law, when you embrace that and you repent of that, it's easy to forgive one another because we've been forgiven so much. Nathan pointed to the murder of Uriah and the adultery. But he didn't name every sin, did he? David had to lust. David had to lie. He had to manipulate. He had to ponder how to, how to get this to happen. He had to ponder how to trick Uriah or try to trick Uriah to make him think that he got his wife pregnant, not him. See, when we sit down before God with this mind that we've sinned against a holy God, we'll see all the sins. We'll see the lusts. We'll see the evil desires. We'll see the ponderings. Why? Because no sin starts with our hands. Do we believe that? Sins start inside. James tells us that it starts with a desire, then it moves to an action, then it moves to death. We have lustful thoughts, we have lustful desires before we ever have lustful actions. Do you think you can play with pornography and not end up in sexual sin? You're wrong. You want to ponder doing evil all day and then not think you're going to end up in evil? You're wrong. God tells us, if you ponder doing evil, you'll do evil. But if you stand before a holy God, understanding that he knows your thoughts, he knows your desires before you even confess them, and as you confess them, you are cleansed. God is infinitely holy infinitely lovely, and his law is holy and righteous and good, so that when we sin, we see this offense, that first and foremost, we've sinned against God and against his word, and therefore we need to be reconciled to him before we ever think of being reconciled to each other. Because when a person stands reconciled before God, it's easy to say, I love you and I forgive you to somebody else. If you're not reconciled before God, Like the unforgiving servant, you start to choke somebody. He's forgiven for $10 million, and he chokes somebody for a penny. Think about what's being said about church life. That if we can't forgive each other, the the problem is not with each other. The problem is with our relationship with God. We're not seeing our sins as primarily an offense against God. When someone takes a myth like, you've sinned against me, that person is taking the seat of God. 
as if his offense is greater than God's offense. When our eyes are on God and his forgiveness, all our massive amounts of sins, it's easy to hear his command to us to love and forgive one another. All the one another passages, they're loving. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Was Jesus lying? Does Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? And then he tells us all these things to do and we go, that's too hard. That's what Peter did. Lord, shall we forgive seven times? Seems like an easy thing to do. No, I say seven times 70. Peter's like, what? When we are forgiven by God, when we stand cleansed before God, it's easy to forgive one another. Why? Because we're not judge and jury. And we're not the one that's primarily offended by our sins. Also, since God is righteous and holy, his judgments are always perfect. When you read his word, he's judging your sins perfectly. That's how our sins are exposed. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we're convicted of our sins, and we're only convicted of the sins that we read about in Scripture. When you read his law, when you read his word, and you hear sinners being convicted of their sin, you go, that's me. But we don't go, it's me. Oop, hide it. We go, it's me. Lord, another sin that you've graciously showed me. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me of my sins. Do we believe that the gospel is sufficient? The one-time life, the one-time death, the one-time resurrection of Jesus, it's either sufficient For all of your sins in all of your life, or it's not sufficient for any of your sins in any of your life. And since his word, his law is true, we are rightly condemned and he is rightly justified. No one can ever say to God that he has made a mistake in his judgment Or he has made a mistake in his law, or his law is unjust. And yet, isn't that what we hear every day? You speak truth to an unbeliever, and they want to spit in your face and say that you're hateful and unloving and unkind when you say that that lifestyle is sinful. Why? Because they hate God. They're filthy, dirty, they hate God. They they can't agree with the law of God, because if they agree with the law of God, they have to agree that they're sinful. It's easier to blame others. See the problem in the church? If our life dependency and unity depends on not blaming others because we have a perfect church, we'll never have a church. But if we understand that the church is built by the blood of Christ, that nothing can stop King Jesus from building his church, and as we understand that we stand cleansed before Almighty God by the work and person of Jesus, we'll have unity every day. We'll have love every day because it's easy to forgive when we've been forgiven and loved by God. Last two verses, we need to see a contrast between verses 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've had people tell me that sex between a husband and wife is dirty, and it's sinful to bring children into the world. It's not what David is saying. David is saying and confessing that his parents are the children of Adam and therefore he is also the children of Adam, child of Adam. And therefore he was born dead under the law with a sin nature that proves why he sinned. Do you understand what he's saying? David's not saying, 
What you hear today is children are born innocent, and somewhere along the line, somebody bad influences them, and then they do bad, and it's that person's fault that influenced them. Don't you hear that in society? But the Bible says children are born dead in their sins and trespasses, born with a fallen nature. Every desire of a natural child is only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. David is just confessing, I was born depraved, and when I walked by my own desires, I murdered my friend, and I stole his wife, and I committed adultery. See, if we don't confess we're born with a sin nature, we won't fight against sin. We'll say, no, I'm, I'm in Jesus, I'm holy, I would never do wrong. No, I would never do that wicked sin. Beloved, if God leaves you to yourself, you'll do sins more wicked than you ever dreamed. Because God opposes the proud. If you and I think that we're holy before God because we're good people naturally, God will oppose us. But if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If we draw near like David did and confess our sins and believe that he's the only one that can wash us clean by his love and his mercy, then he will draw near to us. But if we stand before God like the Pharisee, I'm so thankful I'm not like that loser. I'm thankful I didn't do what he did. I'm thankful that I'm a religious man and I give 10%. He went away unjustified. But the man who beat his breast, who confessed his sins, who didn't even want to lift his eyes to heaven because he felt so filthy in the presence of God, the Bible says he went away justified. He went away whole. He went away clean. Again, this is true for all of humanity. All of humanity are the children of Adam. All of humanity are born with a sin nature. All of humanity born naturally to sin. That's the fruit of the fall. That's the consequence of the fall. Remember before I said sometimes God removes the consequence of our sin and sometimes he doesn't? Well, the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is that they fell from their state of grace. They fell from their state of righteousness, and every child born from them was born with a sin nature. Only Jesus, only Jesus was born without a sin nature because his birth was a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we must defend the virgin birth, because Jesus cannot have a sin nature. The book of Hebrews tells us he was made just like his brothers, yet without sin. If Jesus had no sin, he had no sin nature. That's why he only desired to do the will of God, and that's why he did the will of God, because he didn't have a sin nature. He's the perfect man. He's the holy one of Israel. He walked by faith every day of his life, fully pleasing to God, because he never desired to rebel against God. So feel the contrast. David enters verse 6. He's just declared that his parents were fallen from Ad, fallen in Adam, he declared himself fallen in Adam, and now he says this about his heavenly Father. Behold, you delight in truth, and you teach me wisdom. That's who God is naturally. God naturally delights in truth. He delights in righteousness. He delights in holiness. He delights in goodness, because that's who he is. He can't delight in your sin. He doesn't look at a child and say, oh, he's so cute as he does wickedness. God hates all sin, and God loves righteousness. That's his nature. But David's saying more than just, behold God. We need to do that. 
But he's saying more. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Where does God teach you? Where does God teach me? In our mind and in our heart. He's renewing our mind. He's renewing our heart. He caused our heart to be born again. Took out the heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. And wrote his law on our mind. And wrote his law on our heart. That's the promise of the new covenant. That if God doesn't work on the inside, we will never do good with these. Ever. Not with this. Not with our feet. Not with our body. Not with anything. God transforms us from the inside out. What's another evidence of that? It's not only being born again. It's not only writing his word on his mind, our mind and our heart. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. That the Holy Spirit takes up residence on the inside. You delight in truth in the inward being. That's where God's at work. He changes our will. He changes our desire. And when he changes our will and he changes our desire, what changes? Our actions. Our speech. Again, this side of heaven, we're all going to sin. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I'm talking about a change from one degree of glory to another, that we fight against sin. We don't embrace it. We kill sin because we don't want to dishonor God. We speak the truth because we want to see lives changed. We love because we want to see lives changed. Not for our glory, but for His. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What does the writer of Proverbs say to his son? Seek for wisdom more than silver and gold. Do you know what most parents tell their kids? Seek for gold is the most important thing. Why? How do I know that? Because most people push job more than holiness. Most people push that you have to have a career that makes big bucks because that's the most important thing in this world. And yet the Bible tells us the most important thing is wisdom. Because I'd rather be a wise, poor man than a rich fool. The fool enters not the kingdom of heaven. But whether you're rich or whether you're poor, if you're wise, glory. Because only God's people are wise. That's why Christians should have a word in every circumstance in this world. Except our world's flipped it upside down. Oh, if you're an athlete, you're an actor, you're a rich man, you get to speak. They're the most immoral people on the planet, but they'll give them 10 minutes on the news. If an athlete starts to say, well, I just want to praise Jesus, whoop, we're out of time, go on to the next person. They want to listen to the sinner. Why? Because the sinner is going to itch their ear and tell them exactly what they want to hear. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? Listen, in the latter days, the church will heap up teachers for themselves to tell them what they want to hear. That's why we have dead churches all around. Because they've heaped, heaped up teachers that want to scratch. Oh, yo, you're, you're right on, Pastor. Oh, you're right on as you tell me what I want to hear. And they go out the same way they came in. Beloved, I hope you pray every week that, we, that we're changed on Sundays. That God's word does a work in our heart and in our mind as he teaches us in the inward being and he teaches us in the secret heart. God is truth. Therefore, he loves to put truth in his people. God promises in the new covenant to grant us faith and to write his word on our hearts and on our minds. God sovereignly changes us from the inside out by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us by the scriptures. This is how God makes us more and more like Christ. You can pray daily to be made more like Christ, but if you don't open your Bible, it's a wasted prayer. 
because the word became flesh. If you want to be made like Jesus, you have to know him from reading the word, from Genesis to Revelation, because all of it reveals him. Who told us that? Jesus did. God is wisdom, therefore he loves to teach his people wisdom. This too is by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the scriptures. God is renewing our minds and working in us a biblical worldview so that we can speak his truth and his wisdom into all areas of life. When we speak truth and someone says, I reject that, we don't get riled up because they rejected us. We say with clarity, you're rebelling against God Almighty. You're rejecting his truth, the author of truth. This is why we're commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. We're commanded to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We're commanded to fight against sinful desires and to take every thought captive to the Word of God. Beloved, it is the Word of God that changes us. The Scriptures, all 66 books, are God's gift to you and to me so that we can be transformed that we can put out the worldly thinking that came to us so naturally and put in a God wisdom that only he can give. This is the life of the Christian, to die to self daily and to pick up our cross, to follow Jesus wherever he leads us, whether it's to speak to King David and change a man uh, uh, with the gospel of grace truths like David, or whether it's to speak to the king and have your head cut off like John the Baptist. Nathan and John the Baptist were obedient. Do we believe that? Or do we blame that John did something a little crazy? Because they did the exact same thing. Just two different results. But they were both ordained by God. Like I said, sometimes he removes the consequence of sin, and sometimes he doesn't. We are to love God supremely, and from that love, love our neighbor. We are to seek first his kingdom. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all that God has revealed to us in his word must guide us all of our days. Do we believe that he will make us more like Christ? When when you read Romans 8, that the goal is to be made into the image of the Son, do you believe that for yourself? Then go to the word. Go to the word and see, and then go to God and pray. Because that's the beauty of prayer. We see the truth, we cry out for it to be a reality in our life. We see the sin, we cry out for it to be cleansed in our life. We know what sin is, as Paul tells us. When the law came, it showed me I was a covetous person, and it killed me. If you don't go to God's law, it won't kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, you won't cry out to God to be cleansed. You'll hide it. You'll suppress it. You'll do everything in your power to make it about somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. Because that's what you do when you suppress sin. It's always somebody else's fault. But when you go to God and you're cleansed, you'll find yourself loving more, serving more, doing more for one reason. Because you want God's glory to be seen. And God's glory is seen through the work of the gospel of grace that cleanses you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that once again that you have set aside this day for us to gather and worship, that one day in seven you have ordered us, commanded us, and designed us to gather to worship your holy name. Father, I thank you for the strength that you've given me 
to be able to preach this morning. I thank for the clarity of mind that you've given me. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word and the work of the Spirit. I pray that you would do much in our hearts and minds. I pray that you would work your will in our will, that you would give us your desires so that we would hunger for what you want us to hunger for and we would thirst for what you want us to thirst for. Father, use us in this world. Use us in this church. Use us for your glory so that truth may reign. Lord, we live in a dark and fallen world. Help us to be the lights that you've created us to be. Help us to be the salt that you've created us to be. And help us to understand that it is your will for the godly to suffer. It is your will that righteousness be declared to the ends of the earth. Help us to be faithful. We ask these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.